Hi, podcast listeners. I'm Mary Harris, WNYC's health editor. For six months, we focused on cancer and how many of us are touched by it. One in two men, one in three women will get this diagnosis. WNYC's On the Media produced a two-hour special. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone, this week with the second of two shows exploring the nature of cancer. Stay with me. Last week, we traced how we viewed cancer through time, how we framed it, the words and symbols we've applied to it. But this week, we're moving from the framing of cancer to the selling and owning of cancer. I'm joined again by Siddhartha Mukherjee, author of The Emperor of All Maladies, a biography of cancer. And we begin in 1938, still a long way from understanding what causes cancer, but on the verge of discovering how to make it a cause. Because the template is being set by another deadly illness, a scourge once hidden away, now wrapped in celebrity and the flag. Eddie Cantor was the celebrity behind the March of Dimes campaign to end polio, and the flag was held by none other than FDR. I wish to express heartfelt thanks to all of you who have contributed your dimes and your dollars to further the fight against a cruel disease. Cancer wasn't going to compete with that. But it could learn from it. It's a very significant moment in American history, I think. The camera focused on FDR's upper torso during his first campaign moves back two feet and now shows his lower torso. And FDR himself, he says, look, you know, I might be paralyzed, but I will still walk you out of the depression. The March of Dimes and FDR really transform the treatment and understanding of polio. The virus was identified, grown in the laboratory, and the first vaccines created. And so it was a success story beyond success stories. And a combination of the media and a political will led by the president and the March of Dimes had really, dime by dime by dime, transformed a previously lethal illness into a vaccinable disease. So cancer needed a poster child. They found one in an actual child. The story involves a physician, Sidney Farber, and a group called the Variety Club. Sidney Farber was a pathologist. He was working on children's diseases in the basement of this hospital in Boston. No one knew what caused cancer, but they knew that ultimately it was the growth of cells. And Farber and others uh, in the 1940s began to wonder, well, if there's a chemical that could block the growth of these cells, could that chemical be used to cure cancer? They were convinced, in fact, that such chemicals would cure cancer. And Farber had taken one such chemical from an Indian-born chemist and injected it into children with a very lethal, rapidly progressing form of leukemia called ALL and obtained flickering but very clear remissions. The children would still relapse and die, but this was one of the first times that you could put cancer on the defensive by using chemicals. And Sidney was transformed. He became a chemotherapy activist. And then from a chemotherapy activist, turned into a cancer activist. But Farber knew from the March of Dimes campaign, he needed a mascot, a child who would at least live long enough, who, you know, wouldn't become extinguished in the imagination. And he found a perfect candidate. He found a young boy with a lymphoma who probably was in a profound long remission. He loved baseball. Everything was perfect about this kid, except his name. His name was Einar Gustafsson, which <laughs> even Farber could barely pronounce. 
So Farber, partly to keep his anonymity, but partly also to make him the mascot, said, well, we'll call you Jimmy. And so Jimmy became the Jimmy Fund. Now, was this his idea or was this the idea of the Variety Club? The Variety Club was movie producers and, and movie makers, movie sellers. They also knew how important a mascot can be in the media. In fact, the Variety Club had had its own mascot, a young woman that they had adopted and raised in the past. The proverbial orphan literally left on the doorstep That's of right. the Variety Club. They gave her the middle name Variety. They educated her. And then they started looking for another child-oriented cause, right? So they found Sydney. They were looking around for the right kind of person who could bring cancer advocacy to the forefront. And they found Sidney Farber sitting in his basement. I call him a messiah in a box. This Jimmy Fun was launched with a broadcast. Jimmy was a huge fan of baseball. And they knew that if they could get baseball involved, it would be a home run, as it were, for cancer. So... Shame on you. (laughs) They arranged for Jimmy to go on a big radio show, the Ralph Edwards show. By the magic of radio, we're going to span the bread of the United States and take you right up to the bedside of Jimmy in one of America's great cities, Boston, Massachusetts. Hello, Jimmy. Hi. Hi, Jimmy. This is Ralph Edwards of the Truth or Consequences radio program. I heard you like baseball. Is that right? Yes, that's my favorite sport. It's your favorite sport. Uh, who do you think is going to win the pennant this year? The Boston Braves, I hope. <laughs> who is the catcher? Phil Macy. Have you ever met Phil Macy? No. Hi, Jimmy. My name is Phil Macy. Who is that, Jimmy? Phil Macy. Where is he? In my room. Well, what do you know? Right there in your hospital room. Yeah, that's Phil Macy. And that's how the Jimmy Fund got launched, and it was spectacularly successful. Over the course of a few months, they raised millions of dollars, which they poured into cancer advocacy and cancer research. People still remember these sort of tin cans with Jimmy Fund being passed around and putting in dimes, nickels mailing letters to Jimmy in the hospital saying, Jimmy, get well, here's a $1 bill. But it just wasn't enough money because even though he got to build the Jimmy clinic, he still wasn't any closer to a cure. So he hooked up with Mary Lasker. Mary Lasker's an amazing figure. She had a very personal story to tell. Her own husband, Albert Lasker, really invented modern advertising. Can you remember an ad that he did? uh... Uh, Well, Lucky Strikes, ironically, cigarettes. Albert Lasker knew that advertising was the key to imagination. Television was now coming to the full four. But unfortunately, in the 1950s, Albert died himself of colon cancer. So Mary really threw herself into cancer advocacy. Mrs. Albert D. Lasker is a woman of many and varied interests, flowers and philanthropy, cancer research and community welfare. Uh, Mary, are you happy with what is being done in the whole area of financing medical research in this country? Oh, I'm not a bit happy about it. The amount of money that's available for research is totally inadequate in the United States. You won't believe this. Less is spent on, on cancer research than we spend on chewing gum. And she was looking for a scientific partner who would join her on the national stage to plead for an all-out effort on cancer. And she found Sidney Farber. Tell me how the war on cancer came to be. It was a coinage that Lasker and Farber really toyed around with a little bit in their early conversations. Declare war on something. You could really get the public moving. Members of the Senate, members of the House, ladies and gentlemen, we are here today for the purpose of signing the 
Cancer Act of 1971. And I hope that in the years ahead that we may look back on this day and this action as being the most significant action taken during this administration. Right, the disjunction between hope and hype was particularly acute. The war on cancer had promised things would be solved in 10 years' time. So that that disjunction really drove the research. As five years rolled around, again, let me paint you a picture. We don't know what causes cancer. It can arise from viruses. It can arise from environmental factors. It can arise in families through heredity. But no one knows the real cause. And in the war on cancer is launched without fully understanding the basic cause of cancer. Occasional chemotherapies, occasional poisons, really, have been shown to be successful in certain cancers, but we don't know very much beyond that. So you start creating a bunch of chemicals and throwing them into patients to see which ones work. Three years go by and the media is asking, wait a second, what is happening here? You know, where are the promised cures? Coming up, how cancer sells tickets and popcorn and what the movies teach us about it. This is Rebecca in Rutherford, New Jersey. I've just finished treatment for stage 3 breast cancer. I actually think that Hollywood's portrayals of cancer and cancer treatment are the only references I had for what it would be like. I can think about all those scenes where women are wearing scarves on their heads, even commercials on television, and wondered, am I like them now? Which is weird because... In reality, it's a lot more difficult than you think it's going to be. This is On The Media. On The Media is supported by Moo, offering a variety of business cards and printed products. Moo also offers Printfinity, the ability to print a different image on every card. More at Moo.com. This is On The Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Did you know that last month Google secured a patent for a cancer-fighting device you can wear on your wrist? Quackery? Maybe not. Look it up. You know you want to. I only mention this because a study conducted by the University of Pennsylvania's Center for Clinical Epidemiology and Biostatistics found that news reports were overly optimistic about cancer. Those researchers observed in 2010 that roughly half of all U.S. cancer patients die of the disease or related complications. But the majority of the coverage focused solely on aggressive treatments, and only 13% reported that those treatments can fail. Hollywood serves up a vastly different story, as we shall see. But first, some views of movie cancer as seen from the mezzanine of real life. Hi, my name is Nate, and I'm calling from Greeley, Colorado. My dad passed away a few years ago from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. My main problem with Hollywood's depiction of cancer is how they handle the deathbed. It's always too neat. The person who's dying is like nearly always serene and beneficent, maybe a little pale, but never actually looks sick enough to be dying and never has to go to the bathroom or be laboriously moved around because they can't do it themselves. There's rarely any waiting around or cycles of pain and not pain or fear and and not fear and I don't know it seems like for most people the deathbed is probably more you know David Lynch than Steven Spielberg one thing is clear cancer on the silver screen is very different from real life or even the news media 
Hollywood cancer is almost always fatal. But no, it's all good. Cancer could be seen as a way to force people to examine relationships that they didn't want to examine. It could be a way for them to confront their own mortality. It could be a way to remove a character so that other relationships could develop. Daniel Egan is author of America's Film Legacy, the authoritative guide to the landmark movies in the National Film Registry. He says that Hollywood usually depicts disease as a challenge to be overcome, but not cancer. Especially in the early years of Hollywood, there was no cure for cancer. So there was no way to find a way to live with it because basically you were going to die. So what cancer offered screenwriters was an easy way to engineer the personal growth of their characters. And it still does. The dying get to grow, briefly. But the living, well, they can draw on that ennobling grief forever, as in a walk to remember. Jamie saved my life. She taught me everything about life, hope, and the long journey ahead. I'll always remember. The way Hollywood used it, it was a very clean disease, a very clean way to die. It wasn't like leprosy or dysentery. It was usually some sort of inoperable tumor that just was never seen, and then you just quietly faded away. Especially, it seems, brain cancer. Yes, brain cancer is a favorite. One of the earliest films with cancer, yes, brain cancer, was released in 1939. No, that was a brain injury. Right, Dark Victory with Betty Davis. What's you got? Yes, what have I got? Technically, it's called glioma. Glioma? Oh, don't listen to him. It sounds like a kind of a plant. All surgeons are alike, Judy. Don't be upset, darling. We can call in other doctors. We wait, hmm? Yes, yes, of course. But you have to face it sooner or later. Suppose we just don't talk about it anymore. So we hear all about glioma, but the word cancer is actually never uttered. I don't believe they actually use the word in, in Hollywood until much later, about ten years later. Another headache, Miss Judith? No, not another headache. Yes, a big headache. And I want a bottle of champagne for it. You know, it's not really about Betty Davis's cancer, though. It's about how she responds to her death sentence, first through hedonism and then through detaching herself from her selfishness. She is dying a better person than she was before. Jumping to 1970, it's the snobby Ryan O'Neill that becomes a better person, confronting Ally McGraw's death in the blockbuster weepy love story. Jenny, I'm sorry. Don't. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Roger Ebert, noting the tendency of cinema's cancer patients to grow more beautiful as they sicken, dubbed it Ally McGraw's disease. Jumping ahead to 1983, the mother of all tearjerkers, Terms of Endearment, which uses Deborah Winger's cancer to strengthen the bond with her mother, Shirley MacLaine. This is actually a scene with which many real-life families do identify. It's after 10. I don't see why she has to have this pain. Ma'am, it's not my patient. It's time for her shot. You understand? Do something. All she has to do is hold on until 10. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
Oncologist Giovanni Rosti checked all the movies featuring cancer from 1939 to 2012 and discovered that the victims were usually young and female and succumbed to tidy cancers in the brain, as we heard, or the blood. Of course, there are a few exceptions to Hollywood's use of cancer merely as a device to examine relationships or reorder priorities in the face of mortality. Sometimes it really is about cancer. The Broadway show and TV movie Wit comes to mind, but mostly not. Still, the form has evolved. For instance, the victim in last year's The Fault in Our Stars was, spoiler alert, a young man and he had bone cancer. In this scene, we hear a eulogy he wrote for his also sick but surviving beloved. You don't get to choose if you get hurt in this world, but you do have a say in who hurts you. And I like my choices. I hope she likes hers. Okay, Hazel Grace? You know, my feelings about The Fault in Our Stars are complicated, both before seeing it and after seeing it. Scott Meslow is the week's film and TV critic. He has mixed feelings about last year's The Fault in Our Stars because his brother died of the same cancer as the boy in the movie. But... It does not shy away from the ugliness of cancer. She has a line late in the movie where she says, I wish I could say he was brave and tough right up to the end, but he wasn't. And that's that's an important acknowledgement for a movie to make. But... It's still the kind of movie that was marketed for and made for teenage girls. And 50-50 wasn't? No. <laughs> Shockingly, that was a different audience. Um, <laughs> teenage boys. Yeah. Meslow loves 50-50, the soul cancer comedy we could find. The script was based on the writer Will Reiser's story. He was diagnosed with cancer of the spine and had a 50-50 chance of survival. His character is played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and it co-stars his real-life friend, Seth Rogen. It was critically acclaimed in part because the hero is not a perfect pearl. He's a mess. He even listens to Rogan's advice about how to leverage his cancer to get the girls. You know what I'd do? Get into the cancer thing faster. Faster? Faster. <laughs> it's your hook, man. It's what you got. It's, you know, so what just, that's the first thing I it, say. Man. That's what makes you different. It's what sets you apart. It's, it, it, you know, you're sympathetic. Okay, okay. Just try it, okay? It's a great song. Totally. I have cancer. I was wrong. I was wrong. It was, it was weird. It's weird like that. It's not too soon. It doesn't sound cool. Why do you think we haven't seen more cancer comedies? Well, I think it starts with calling it a cancer comedy. It doesn't sound like a very compatible idea. If you're a screenwriter, you might look at that mountain and say, I can't climb that. Kind of like springtime for Hitler? Yeah. <laughs> you can't possibly, in theory, combine those two ideas. I think 50-50 proved that it can be done. But that was a very specific treatment from someone with a very specific experience who basically had the chops to say, look, there are funny things about having cancer. Certainly, I mean, when it came down to my brother, we laughed all the time. You know, we had a lot of fun. It, it wasn't like it was the only thing we ever talked about or did. Specificity, a basic rule of drama, a specific person, a specific constellation of relationships, a specific cancer. Because we know cancer is complicated. Which is why I'm guessing Hollywood's old cardboard cancers may soon outlive their usefulness. Or at the very least, be played increasingly for laughs. Coming up, owning cancer. 
how people seize on or shun technology to control their own stories and sometimes change the lives of strangers. Hi, OTM. It's Jeff Jarvis. Feel free to use my whole name. I've had prostate cancer and thyroid cancer, and I've written about both online. Thus, I've told the entire world about my malfunctioning penis. You might wonder if I'm insane, but I've actually found great value in this. I got support. I got information. I inspired other people to get tested. I'm lucky. I had cancer light. But nonetheless, I found my path much easier because I shared it. This is On the Media. On the Media is supported by Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. And Road Scholar, with educational travel adventures to 150 countries, including Cuba, offering experiences for grandparents and grandchildren, active outdoor enthusiasts, and others. A catalog is available at roadscholar.org. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Social media can embrace you or engulf you. For those confronting cancer, it's a resource, a burden, or for some, an irrelevancy. They decide. My name is Nicole. I'm calling from Seattle. I credit social media with leading me to the effective treatment for my cancer. I was diagnosed with stage four appendix cancer, which is a very rare cancer. You know, the prognosis is usually quite poor, but I was able to find a Facebook group specifically for appendix cancer. And talking to the patients on that group uh, led me to a specialist in Baltimore. It's helped me cope enormously because we can talk about what it's like to have lost so many organs, to have our lives change so much, and to survive or not to survive as we lose people pretty regularly on the board, which is very hard. Hi, my mom has jumped from 1B to stage 3 in about a month. She has pretty much had a social media blackout for everybody. I guess what's tough is that, you know, I can't really tell a lot of people. I can't really deal with it in that way. But at the same time, I mean, personally, I don't know what telling a whole group of people online is really going to do for her. I mean, they're not doctors. They can't help her. They can't fix her, you know. uh, I'd rather remain anonymous, to be honest. Uh, Like I said before, if my mom doesn't want anybody to really know. So social media can be a resource and a solace or an intrusion and a snoop. It also can be a crucible for public action. One year ago, Amy Hardy of Fredericksburg, Virginia, was the mother of a dying seven-year-old boy. Josh's condition was getting more critical by the day, and we heard our medical team say that if he didn't get the medicine that Chimerics had, things weren't going to go well for him. Josh had endured four bouts of cancer, heart failure, and a bone marrow transplant. But the transplant had caused a deadly infection. There was a drug still in clinical trials that could save him, but they couldn't get it. I just kind of put that plea out on Facebook. What was the plea? Facebook post March 6, 2014. Please help us save our son. Share this post if you believe a child's life is more important than money. 
the situation is this. Our son, who recently had a bone marrow transplant, has developed adenovirus. There is a drug called brincidofavir that has been proven to treat the adenovirus effectively. Our doctor at St. Jude told us they ran the study for the drug company, and he knows it will work. However, the drug company has refused to release the drug for compassionate care because they are trying to take it to market. Basically, they are not going to save a child's life for money. When we got involved, there were 3,000 hits on social media. Richard Plotkin was a retired trial lawyer who'd seen his grandson suffer from cancer. His family launched the Max Cure Foundation to help similar children. He offered to help Josh by publicizing his case. My small foundation alone had 1.1 million hits in four or five days on Facebook and 400,000 on Twitter. This story reached Brazil, Germany, France, England, and the Middle East. I was interviewed by a German television station because of this. Ken Mock told me that he received from friends emails from the Middle East asking him how he was. Kenneth Mock was the CEO of Chimerix, a small drug company with about 55 employees and one drug, its first drug, Brensidofavir, still in clinical trials. Chimerix had previously provided it to over 400 critically ill people, either individually or under a large government program. But that program ended in 2012. Kenneth Mock. And the decision was made to focus the human and financial resources of the company on seeking formal FDA approval for Brinsadofavir. Requests continued to pour in and all were denied. It was when Josh Hardy's request was denied a second time that the family turned to Facebook to make that crucial plea. The next day, Chimerix was swamped by a social media deluge. It was an extraordinarily rapid response. There were many tweets all the way from very nice pleas, it would be the ethical thing to do, to as violent and demonizing as one can imagine. Did you suspect that this might happen? Had it happened before? Social media had been used before by families seeking access to an experimental medicine. It had never been used this intensely in part because the family members were in contact with several people who were extraordinarily social media savvy. Among them, Richard Plotkin, that trial lawyer turned activist, who understood that addressing a crisis like this requires more than a Facebook page and a Twitter feed. You need a face, because I knew through our sources that I might be able to get them on CNN, Fox and Friends, or Fox News Channel. And the face that was produced was of Amy Hardy, uh, Josh's mother. What is the right face? The right face is of a mother who's desperately pleading to save the life of a child. It was very (laughs) nerve-wracking. First of all, your son is sick. You are in the ICU. They're telling you how critical he is, and you need to leave to go be on television. And so a large part of me didn't want to do it. You were afraid he might not be alive? I don't even want you to say that out loud. I'm sorry. My husband talked to me. Um, He's like, we've got to do this. They're giving you the opportunity to state your case. You have to go. So I did. I can remember waiting to go on Fox and Friends. I felt like my chest was going to explode. My heart was going to come through my chest right there. (laughs) And I could hear the show going on in my ear. And I knew after the next commercial break, I was going to be on television. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do. But the song that they led 
into commercial break was You Gotta Have Faith by George Michael. Yes, I gotta have faith. And I was like, that must be a God wink. I'm going to settle down right now. I can do this. I can do this. And it was actually a miracle that I cry at everything. I can't even watch a Hallmark commercial without crying. So for me to be on national television and plead for my son's life was nothing short of a miracle. Why will the drug company not give him, as a compassionate use, this drug that he needs to survive? They've definitely given excuses, but it's, nothing is acceptable to us. This is our child's life, and we just feel compelled to just keep asking for it and begging for it because if he does not get it, he is, he is going to die. That was just the beginning. Tonight, a local community is fighting for Josh Hardy. He's a seven-year-old boy. Hardy's turned to Facebook, convincing tens of thousands of Americans to lobby the drug maker and even the White House for compassion. Now, I know you think, all of us think, why can't they just give this little boy this drug? I asked Richard Plotkin, did you consider the position of Kenneth Mock and Chimerics? You know, the ethics of saying yes to one patient and no to hundreds of others? My goal was to get Josh Hardy the drug. If, in fact, the boy Josh died, I would have done everything in my power to destroy the company and Mr. Mock. As Plotkin prepared for his interview on Fox News, he decided that Kenneth Mock was the problem, so he'd make him the villain. And he had an eager ally in Fox interviewer Peter Johnson, Jr. I wrote to Mr. Mock last night, and I told him that, unfortunately, this little boy made a turn for the worse, and as you point out, he may not live out the week. I did not get a response whether that, in fact, had changed his mind. All I can tell you is that he is adamant, and as a result, it appears the final plea is to the board of directors, to Chimerics, who I'd like to make that plea right now, and I'll steal a page out of the playbook of Matthew McConaughey, in the movie uh, Time to Kill. I asked the board to close your eyes, and as you close your eyes, assume there's a little boy lying in a hospital bed who says to his father, Daddy, am I going to die? And if I'm going to die, who will take care of me in heaven? And then I want you to assume that this little boy is your child or your grandchild. And members of the board of directors, I have no doubt how you would respond to that. Richard Plotkin, thank you for being a patient. Okay, so let's replay that reporter's rhetorical question. All of us think, why can't they just give this little boy this drug? This drug has the potential to be the first broad-spectrum antiviral against what are called double-stranded DNA viruses. Kenneth Mock. We've all heard of them. We just don't call them DSDNA viruses. They're cytomegalovirus, herpes viruses, human papillomavirus, smallpox, and adenovirus, which causes the common cold. But in immunocompromised people, it can kill you. Mm -hmm. So those viruses are rampant throughout the global population. If you said yes to Josh, how could you say no to anybody else who came in with a life-threatening adenovirus infection? How could you say no to patients with a life-threatening cytomegalovirus infection? You might swamp the company with requests for compassionate use and not be able to complete your clinical trials necessary for approval of the drug. It cost $50,000 to provide compassionate use of the drug to each patient, not to mention vast amounts of time and attention. Remember, Chimerix only had about 55 employees. Moreover, Mock had served 10 years on the board of a biotech industry group that had drafted a set of principles he firmly embraced. The first is if you're going to provide access to an experimental medicine, 
it must be done equitably, making sure that nobody is chosen for a particular parameter, be it friendship, money, politics, or social media. The second point is that nothing you do in providing expanded access should delay your program for approval of the drug by the FDA because that does influence the near-term patients versus the future patients. And while they may be hypothetical future patients now, they are real future patients when their time comes. A little background on Kenneth Mock. 25 years ago, he founded the first company to develop cord blood stem cells, since used to treat over 10,000 people. Before that, he ran a company that worked on small molecular therapies for cardiovascular aging and diabetes. So he's been around the cutting-edge treatment block, so to speak. But within a week of the Hardys' first Facebook plea, he did get Josh that drug. Josh Hardy has a message for all the people who supported the social media campaign that helped save his life. I appreciate your help, and I'm good. So how did Kenneth Mock square that circle? Starting on Monday morning, March 10th, literally just three days or so after the social media event began, Chimerics and the Food and Drug Administration began conversations which led to the creation of a new phase three clinical trial that would allow the company not only to provide brinsadofavir to Josh Hardy, but also to many other patients in need and to collect data that could be used in support of the ultimate application to the FDA for approval. The new trial is focused on adenovirus, Josh's virus, which hadn't been tested before. Of course, once the drug had hit the market, doctors could have prescribed it for adenovirus anyway. But, says Mock, you wouldn't have had good data on how well it worked. Now you will. But did it slow its path to market? I don't believe it did. Under a different scenario, it might have. We were able to get him the drug in a scenario which I think was to the benefit of Josh, to the benefit of chimerics, and to the benefit of future patients. So I absolutely believe that the solution that was reached created a win-win for everybody involved. Richard Plotkin was delighted by the solution and also by Mock. Let me tell you, it would be a privilege for me, (laughs) anything I would do with that man. I think what he did here was outstanding. And the fact that he was able to come up with the idea to start that clinical trial was brilliant. And the fact that he was let go is outrageous in my mind. Yep, Mock was fired. That doesn't worry him. But the treatment of the issue across the media does. The tenor from the beginning was, how could you not make this drug available? There was never a sense in the media coverage of the dilemma or ethical debate that exists. Josh Hardy had a very positive response to Brinsadofavir, and everybody looked at this and said, it's magnificent. The child got the drug. He survived. But what might have happened to the development program if Josh Hardy had an equally rapid and negative response? Is it possible that that might have slowed down the development pathway for Brinsadofavir by a week or a month or two months or a year? And if that had happened, would not the patients who might have received the drug in the future during that month or two months or year themselves possibly have died? 
Kenneth Mock co-wrote a paper with noted bioethicist Arthur Kaplan last August called Rescue Me, the Challenge of Compassionate Use in the Social Media Era. It said that the Hardy case illustrates the power of social media to influence health care interventions and also the roadblocks to those in desperate need of them. And there needs to be a new system to resolve the log jams and funding issues, a review board perhaps, so decisions are not forced by tweets and talk show hosts, reporters and politicians. They said that there's a moral tension that often pits the few against the many. Meanwhile, however, Josh is doing very well. Cancer, cancer, cancer. If you're still with me, I admire you. It's hard. It's not funny. But sometimes it can be, right? Julia Sweeney was one of the first to bring cancer and comedy together on stage. Twenty years ago, she was famous for her Saturday Night Live character, Pat, who was either a man or a woman, but whose colleagues could never tell which. After leaving SNL, Sweeney made It's Pat! the movie, but it was a flop. Then her brother got cancer. He moved in with her in Los Angeles. Then Sweeney's parents moved in with her. Then she got cancer. Her sanctuary amid that chaos was a basement comedy club where every Sunday she'd get on stage and chronicle the absurdity of living with cancer and also her family. It was really mostly because of Kathy Griffin, um, who was my (laughs) friend from the Groundlings. And she kept saying, this is perfect for you. This is perfect for you. Just come to this club called the Uncab. There's the basement of a big club. It only fits 50 people. You can't see anyone's faces. It's really for stand-ups to break their pattern of telling jokes and for exaggerating. Around the same time, all this crap was happening with my brother. He was diagnosed with stage four lymphoma. He didn't have insurance. My parents moved in with me and I had to kind of keep myself together all week during very trying situations while we were trying to figure out what do you do when you have lymphoma and you don't have any insurance. And then also my parents with their own crazinesses. And so I started going to the uncabin telling stories about just what had happened that week. And it was an incredibly satisfying experience. It allowed me to get through the next week by just being able to vent. Now, the nature of those moments in the uncabaret, that was really raw. I'm going to play a little clip of that. <laughs> oh, please be with me tonight. All right. Um, so briefly, um, there's five kids in our family. I'm the oldest. And my brother, who's the fourth child, um, got lymph cancer. <laughs> Hold for laughs. <laughs> and... Um, It's a very tragic, uh, terrible situation, although he's doing very well, and um, he is at the UCLA Cancer Center. (laughs) Oh, and um, every day he has radiation, and every other day he has his spinal tap and spinal chemo, and every three weeks he has the big chemo. So... My parents, okay, so that's all you need to know about this is that I am with my parents, but in a very trying situation where I can't really yell at them for the small annoying things that they do, which I would do normally because of the, you know, largesse of the total situation. (laughs) Oh my God, listening to that is really traumatic for me right now. (laughs) Okay. It was a really difficult time. It was a freaky time. And to me, feeling like you're in the middle of a crisis and believing that somebody totally understands, even if that's a group of people in the dark, (laughs) 
it's just enormously helpful to me getting through it. There were times on stage early on where you said things like, I'm going to try my hardest to make this effing funny, and you ramble. You talk about some very unfunny things. How did you make it funny? Well, I actually think it is funny. Like the whole idea that we're trying so hard to deal with the situation, and yet all of our annoying behaviors and personalities are at their full throttle, and yet you can't really do anything about it because, you know, everyone's trying to help each other, and it's a big disaster, and financially, and emotionally, and health-wise, and in every way. Um, Okay, I just realized that it sounds like it's not funny, but actually, it is funny. I mean, like, to me, that is really funny, because I guess there's a lot of comedy for me in people trying to keep themselves together and do the right thing when it's impossible to do the right thing. And I feel like when you have cancer and when you're in a family with people with cancer and that's just happening every hour. These evenings at the Uncab turned into God Said Ha, which was a one-woman show, then a Broadway show, then a movie produced by Quentin Tarantino and eventually a book. God, that sounds so awful. (laughs) It really is. I'm listening to this going, wow, you really exploited that situation. (laughs) Can I play you one of my favorite parts? Yes. Mike had received so many different spinal taps that scar tissue had built up along his spinal column and they couldn't access it anymore. So one day we were at UCLA and Mike was on the examination table and the doctor came in and he said, Mike, this is what I suggest. I think that we should put a shunt into your forehead, which is a plastic opening so that we can put the chemo directly into the cranial fluid. And Mike immediately said, listen, Doc, if you think you're going to put a faucet into my forehead, you may as well give me a lobotomy at the same time. And there was this awkward pause. And then my mother chimed in and she said, oh, Mike, I don't think it's like a faucet. I think it's more like a, a, a spigot. And then I think even the doctor was a little embarrassed And he said, well, Mike, let me just tell you That my patients who have the shunts Well, they, uh, they love them And Mike said, oh, they do, do they? Well, then by all means, give me a shunt And Mike did get a shunt And after that, his refrain became I love my shunt And whenever the doctor would come into the examination room, he'd say, how you doing, Mike? And Mike would say, I'm not doing too well, Doc, but I'll tell you one thing. I love my shunt. (laughs) And to just show you how surreal things were getting, at night, the whole family would watch shows like ER and Chicago Hope. And whenever anyone would come into the emergency room, Mike would yell out, Give them a shunt! They need something to love! (laughs) Oh, God. I still get emails from people who say, I love my shunt. (laughs) I do. (laughs) After God said ha, you started getting calls from pharmaceutical companies? Yes. Well, first I got calls from cancer charities. You know, like come to the Oncology Nurses Association and do 20 minutes of God Said Ha. I did so many of those, but 
the oncology nurses one is the one I really remember because I love those women. And also they understood that it was funny too. It was tragic. It was funny, but it was what they lived with. So there were all kinds of great experiences like that. But then I started getting calls from big pharmaceutical companies, like come for just a huge amount of money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, and they wanted me to only say certain things in my monologue. And there was one drug that they were promoting that helped build up the white blood cell count. And they were wondering if my brother Mike had taken that drug. And I said, no. And they said, but he was tired all the time, right? So you could really emphasize how tired he was because we're going to have these doctors there in the audience and we're going to try to get them to prescribe this new drug that's really helpful to people. And it's such a breakthrough and such a wonderful thing. It was just really confusing. Like I had now gone into the creepy area of cancer (laughs) because Mm -hmm. now it was big interests paid physicians with me on stage talking about how important this drug was that I knew had to be getting paid at least as much as I was, which was a lot. Sometimes we go to places where they would invite cancer patients because they wanted the cancer patients to request this certain drug. It was so creepy and so disgusting. So then after that, I just quit. And ever since then, I just look with a very jaded eye at the whole cancer complex. I'll call Mm -hmm. it the cancer complex Mm -hmm. because it is big and it is lucrative. Talk to me about cancer-related memoirs in general. I mean, without casting aspersions on anyone, your show was utterly engaging, neither completely gloomy nor predictably uplifting. (laughs) Well, Brooke, I can't help it if I'm talented. (laughs) But what's the trap one can fall into, do you think? You can be self-pitying. You can't be self-pitying. That is just the number one rule. And you have to do your best to engage people. I mean, you have to remember that it's still an audience, you know, like you're still there taking up someone's time. But I also think, okay, let's say my story is boring and let's say I'm not funny and let's say I'm not telling it in a unique way. And let's say I'm even maybe a little self-pitying over it. I think it's still valuable to tell people my story. Now, I don't think it's valuable to try to get people to buy my story. (laughs) But I think if you're in a group of people who are all going through the same thing and everyone gets to talk, I think that is hugely beneficial. You know, the term comic relief – We have that term because humor is something that we crave in tough times. And you were one of the first to bring it to cancer. And despite how common cancer is in our lives, it's not like cancer and comedy meet all that often. Why not? I don't really know why not. I think it should be more. I mean, you first have to be a funny person. Like, you don't get cancer and become funny. (laughs) You're funny and then you get cancer. So I think if you have the ability to see the world in all its ridiculousness, then when you are confronted with a huge life-threatening situation, if one of your defense mechanisms is to see things absurdly, then that's going to get dialed up. But the thing is, is that relief part, that's what you provide not just for yourself, but for everybody else. It's a relief. This is what I love about comedy is that it's, vocal. When we laugh, we make a sound. It gets other people to laugh too. It's a communal experience. And it feels good. It feels good to be in the audience and it feels good to be on stage. I want to play you one more just to take you down memory lane. Oh, God. One morning, I walked into my radiation doctor's office 
And he said, Julia, we have some bad news. And I said, oh, bad news. And I sat down. And he said, it appears that we've lost one of your ovaries. And I said, oh, um, don't worry. I, my oncologist warned me about that. He told me that one of my ovaries might die because of the effects of the radiation. So, you know, I was prepared. And he said, no, 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 no. I don't mean that one of your ovaries has died. I mean that we've lost one of your ovaries. We've been looking at these x-rays, and uh, we see this ovary over here, but uh, this ovary over here has gone off somewhere. (laughs) And he said, you know, I've seen this before, and it's not unusual for an ovary once cut off from its responsibilities to travel. I said, oh, I guess I could understand that if I were an ovary and I suddenly didn't have to deal with that fallopian tube anymore. I might just want to see some stuff. And he said, uh, don't worry, you know, it's going to turn up eventually. We just have to keep an eye out for it. And I said, oh, okay, now, um, I'm not going to, like, cough it up, am I? It did turn up eventually. It did. <laughs> Although, who cares if it's there or not? (laughs) (laughs) Julia, thank you so much. Oh, Brooke, thank you. This is so exciting. (laughs) Writer and performer, Julia Sweeney. So, Sweeney owned her cancer with comedy. Everyone who copes with it finds their own way. Today, you can choose. You can engage with the world from your bedroom or withdraw with the click of a mouse or a swipe of the thumb. You don't have to be what doctors or screenwriters or commercials say you are. Small consolation, perhaps, when your cells are running amok. But at least you have a little more control over the world you take in and the world you project. Half a century ago, if you got cancer, the cancer defined you. It can't do that anymore. On the Media was produced this week by Mira Sharma. Our engineer was Greg Rippin. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is produced by WNYC and distributed by NPR. Bob Garfield will be back next week. I'm Brooke Gladstone. This week's On the Media is part of WNYC's Living Cancer series, a radio companion to Ken Burns' Presents Cancer, The Emperor of All Maladies. Support for Living Cancer is provided by the Susan and Peter Solomon Family Foundation. Additional funding for WNYC's medical science reporting is provided by the Iris and Junming Lee Foundation. On the Media is supported by Moo, offering a variety of business cards and printed products. Moo also offers Printfinity, the ability to print a different image on every card. More at Moo.com. Support for On the Media also comes from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Overbrook Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.